Fast Company Podcast is looking for our audience to weigh in on season one so we can make season two even better. Just go to fastcompany.com slash survey slash podcast. And as a listener, once you complete the survey, you'll be entered to win a $50 gift card. Again, that's fastcompany.com slash survey slash podcast to take our audience survey, tell us what you want to hear, and you'll be entered to win a $50 gift card. Thanks for listening to season one of Creative Conversation, and I'll see you in season two. I'm Casey Finey, and this is Fast Company's Creative Conversation, a podcast where we tap into some of the most creative minds in film, TV, music, and beyond. Fast Company recently held its fourth annual innovation festival in New York City. And take it from a guy who's been around since the beginning, that it just keeps getting bigger and better. And honestly, this year was no exception because I had the chance to chat with Larry Wilmore for a very special and very live season finale of Creative Conversation. We all know Larry as the former host of The Nightly Show and current host of his own podcast, Black on the Air. But... All of that came after decades of working behind the scenes as a writer, producer, creator, and sometimes actor for iconic shows like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Sister Sister, and The Bernie Mac Show. Wilmore has gained a vast amount of knowledge that he's now using to help young creatives get their own visions off the ground. In our conversation, Larry talks about what he's looking for in the next generation of creators, what comedy's role in politics should be, and how he fought through one especially sticky bout of writer's block and wound up with an Emmy. So, with all that said, please enjoy this very special episode. Sorry, we're just, uh, if I'm out of breath, we're dancing to Bruno Mars back there. <laughs> it was right. kind of great. Larry, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks, man. Yeah, I feel like, you know, early in your career, you were bouncing around between acting and writing and producing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of your early credits yeah. are what, like... Sister, sister. My ancient credits. No, yes. no, no, but legendary credits. <laughs> sister, sister. Yeah. Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Living Color. Like sure. Basically, anything black in like the late nineties, right. early two thousands. Like you had. <laughs> That's right. Abandoned, which I was, was keeping I mean, it a hundred in the day. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie Foxx show, Bernie Mac Everything. So, no. I mean, how how was it developing? Because, like mm-hmm. I said, you were you kind of had your hand in every single bucket of writing, acting, producing in mm-hmm. various elements. So, how was that for you and your creative process? Developing all those skills yeah, it, at the same time. It started kind of as a strategy. I, every, almost everything I do is is comes out of a strategy to survive, really, <laughs> because showbiz is one of the toughest. You know, for anybody that's ever been in it, showbiz. We were just having fun about Bruno Mars. We know the music business is another one of those. It's, you know. Sometimes it's not so hard to break in. The harder part is having a career that lasts. You know, how do you craft that? And even at, a, at an early age, I had some kind of soft break-ins, you could say. Like, and, and I had considered myself a performer early on. I was a theater major in college, and I did stand-up comedy also. I was kind of doing two things. And the one thing about stand-up comedy is that you had to write your own act. Yeah. And so stand-up comedy kind of promotes kind of an entrepreneurism, if you will. You know, you're really 
feel like you're controlling your own career in many ways, which is really empowering. But as an actor, you feel the opposite. You feel like you're beholden to everything, you know, a casting director's whims, the whims of the business, the cycles of what people like and all that stuff. It, like, it's no wonder actors seem to be crazy sometimes. Seem. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know. But a lot of it is, you know, going through that can drive you crazy. So at a certain point, I realized I had to take control of my career. I was a black comic that did political humor, that did social satire, social commentary. And we weren't... Hollywood didn't view a black comic like that as something I think that was marketable. Like Robert Townsend made fun of it in his film Hollywood Shuffle, where the people said, "Can you be more merphonic?" You know, like they would say, this, "Perfect," you know. Like, and they, used, I used to see things. I would go on auditions, and they'd have code words like "urban." You know, uh, I'm like, what the fuck is urban? What does that mean? Exactly. You know, instead of saying black, they said urban, you know. I'm like, well, Friends is urban, right? <laughs> Aren't they? Aren't they in the city? Sex in the city, sex in the urban, maybe? <laughs> you know, so all those code words. But but I used to look kind of through that, and I, I saw that they were looking for kind of one type, you know. And I just wasn't that type. So I felt that I needed to to be able to craft my own path. And I was really inspired by things that Spike Lee was doing at the time, Keenan Ivory Wayans, and some of those people. Absolutely. And I kind of used that as my model to uh, hopefully do, uh, be able to create a space for myself. So it was really out of a survival mechanism. Yeah, I mean, and you survived, and you thrived. Yeah, well, I tried. I tried my best. <laughs> and I think, you know, at the root of all that you've been doing is mm -hmm. it is comedy. I mean, that's, yes. that's and so comedy like, generates all of it. Yeah. Exactly. So knowing that that's kind of the through line for all of this, but you've done it in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. You've you know through satire, comedy, through sketch shows, right. through narrative TV. Does your creative process differ when you have a different format that you're yeah. writing or producing? Absolutely, for? great question. Um, yeah, as I said, my we were talking about this backstage a little bit. My, I'm really kind of conversations. Yeah, I know it was fun. You're great, by the way. I, I could talk to you for hours. Um, but uh, we were talking about compartmentalizing and being able to do different things. You kind of get punished for it when you're young. You know, people want you to focus on one thing. Why everybody has an opinion about what you want to do is beyond me, right? But you're always told that and. I knew even at an early age that I was just interested in a lot of things, you know. And so the key is how do you create lanes for those things more than anything else, more than why give something else, to try to create lanes for it. And uh, so even though I was a performer, I knew that writing was something that I not only did out of necessity, I actually started to like it. And because I also was in theater and a lot of my roots were in theater, I, I really liked dramatic storytelling. You know, I read all the greats, you know, Shakespeare, Ibsen, Shaw, all those people, you know, all the great playwrights, all that stuff. So story is something that um, inspires me as much as funny, right. both of those things. So when you're dealing with form, that's the third aspect of it. So in stand-up comedy, of course, a joke is the, is the thing that leads right. it. So joke to me is like truth concentrate. Right, <laughs> it's like the most amount of truth in the shortest amount of words. Right. You know, is kind of what a joke is, right? And that's a fun thing to try to figure out. You know, and hard thing to figure. It's out. hard. Yeah. But when you figure it out, it's so satisfying. Right. That's why we revere the comics that are great because they did the hard work of figuring that shit out. Right. You know. Right. Like Chappelle's words are no accident. That is very. There are no accident. Yeah. You know, you can if you looked at his 
like his words, even words that seem non-consequential mm-hmm. are very consequential right. to link ideas and link thoughts and that sort of thing. So that requires a certain amount of thinking about how you're going to do that. Whereas if you're doing a sketch or a half-hour sitcom, you have to shift your brain a little bit because now you're thinking of maybe a story that you have to tell. And, and then the, the story arc takes over as the thing you're more beholden to, you know, and the joke is more in the background and that right. type of thing. Absolutely. So maybe conflict is the thing that you're focusing on. So right. depending on what it is, shifts how you're going to look at it. And, you know, as I mentioned, you've, you've worked in all these uh, various capacities, and, and that includes being uh, the creator or the co-creator for certain shows. And right. so what, what's the difference for you when you are supporting someone else's vision mm-hmm. versus creating your own? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's something that luckily I've been able to do, but I, I'm going to go back to the genesis of that. Ironically, that came out of not knowing what my voice was, Mm. you know, ironically enough. And not, I think if I look back and I'm honest with myself, not having confidence in my voice. And so I felt more confident writing for somebody else. Right. So even when I was a stand-up comic, I would write jokes for friends. Right. You know, and my act, I felt, was okay. I never really loved my act. It was always a combination of things. And ironically, at the time when my act was at the point where I felt it really could have developed to be really a unique piece of comedy, that's when I started writing for television. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, so I Do you always, remember any of your acts? Oh, yeah. Like, sure. oh, I, there's a lot of good stuff in my act. There really is a lot of good stuff. But it was, I was never that concert type of comic, yeah. you know, the Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence, that big style I was more of a club type of comic, you know. Um, And I always dealt with ideas and concepts and that type of thing. Like, I remember I did this fake commercial called Black Away. It's a product you put in your mouth that takes the black out of your voice. You can go on on job job, uh, interviews. Yes, exactly. It's sorry not to bother you years later. Yeah, absolutely. Get your money. No, I talked to Boots about that, yeah. (laughs) I was like, you know, Boots, I had this idea years ago. But, uh... I remember one joke I had about identity very early on where I talked about, you know, a lot of people ask me what I'm mixed with because I'm light-skinned, you know, and they give me that face too. They go, are you (laughs) (laughs) mixed with something? (laughs) You know, like I'm a secret recipe or something. And then I I said, look, if I was a beer, I'd be a Negro light, okay? You know? Does that explain? And and I am a third less angry than the regular Negro, so it kind of it kind of actually all makes. So that was like a joke I did in my stand-up years ago. But look, it still gets a laugh. It still gets a laugh. But at the root of it is about identity. Right. You know, we're still talking about those things. You know, when I did in Living Color, you know, so much of that was about culture and a culture that was emerging. Hip hop was a culture that was emerging. Nobody, it wasn't on television at the time. People take it for granted now. Right. You know, you weren't going to see a rapper on Johnny Carson, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> Which, thinking back, I would love to see that now. I know, it would have been amazing, yeah. But Arsenio was on at the time and in Living Color. They were the only two shows that really kind of showed, that kind of brought the hip hop culture onto television. It was so exciting to write. Um, about culture and to be writing about that at the time, you know, figuring that stuff out. Right. You know. So what was so? It? So anyhow, to go back was, to the question, yeah. so I'm very comfortable, ironically, writing for other people, less comfortable writing myself, yeah. you know, or writing my own thing. Over the years, I've gotten more comfortable writing that, but it's always been an easy thing for me. So it's easy for me to turn off 
the brain for me and put the brain on you and figure your thing out, mm -hmm. you know. Like, as a kid, I did impressions and that type of thing, you know. Right. And it was always easy for me to imitate other people. So it's kind of interesting. Huh. So when, when would you say you found your voice? Like, if you said that yeah. you, it was... It was a result of you not feeling confident in your yes. own skills. So, like, when would you say you... I think it's a continual process. Yeah. Um, I'm not the type of person to ever admit that I've found that. You know, I think I'm always finding it. Yeah. You know, and different things bring out different parts of it. We, t we were talking about the uh, PJs. It was an animated show that I did. Anybody watch um, the PJs? Anybody remember? The yes, same thank thanks. So it was under <laughs> underappreciated. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> I had so much fun doing that. I co-created that with Steve Tompkins and Eddie Murphy. And... That was a real satirical show. Yeah. We were trying to take culture and just turn it on its head. For the people who don't know, would you mind giving them a little? Yeah, it was a stop-motion show, really, uh, animated show, that took place in the projects. I mean, it's all you need. We had a crackhead on it, you know, <laughs> who had lines like, well, gotta go, crack don't smoke itself, you know, was one of his lines, which he's not wrong, you know what I mean? <laughs> And that was his job, you know. His actual job was to smoke crack, you know. So we were taking the conventional ideas of what could actually be in a sitcom right. and turning that upside down and getting uh, satirical looks at the culture and stuff. I remember the two boys were talking, and he goes, you see, I hope we never grow old. And he says, well, Calvin, the statistics are in our favor. <laughs> and that was a hard-hitting joke. It's a, yeah, look at you. Look at your reaction. Look at that. Yes. We did that joke in the 90s, you know. Oh, my God. And he, once again, he's not wrong. Right. Right. And, but then we treated it like the sitcom where they're like, laughing while you're crying. Yes, exactly. So, because kind of going off of uh, realizing helping someone realize their own like their own vision you mm -hmm. had such a huge hand in right. insecure mm -hmm. life which is you know just they just finished season three yes I heard a woo and that's yeah. justified yeah. I'm just saying thank you so mm -hmm. what what is that role for you is that right. kind of, you know fairy godfather of making yeah. these shows happen that I enjoy that so much yeah. now Casey I have to tell you um, when I met Issa they uh, HBO had asked if I would take a meeting they she didn't have any experience in normal television just mm -hmm. she did the web series uh, awkward black girl which was brilliant and um and they thought maybe i could help supervise her you know and that type of thing whatever you want to call it and i did i wasn't familiar with her and i watched awkward black girl and I go this is brilliant you know who is this person i love this voice and when we met we really hit it off personally and hitting it off personally was such a nice surprise we decided well i i asked her secretly hoping she'd say yes i said do you want to just write it together rather than me supervising she was like yes and i was like yes so <laughs> <laughs> and uh she's always surprised that i would think that i'm like what are you talking about you were awesome you know yeah. I mean, here's like no but you have to like, know but talent is talent guys yeah. let me tell you something i don't care what stage you're in we're skill different from talent i always separate the two I can recognize t talent immediately. Some people just don't have the skill level yet to express that talent in a way that we can accept it as good. Doesn't mean the talent's not there. Right. You know, some people never quite have the talent, but they have a certain amount of skill, and you enjoy their stuff, but it doesn't quite penetrate in the same way. Right. But but they're good craftspeople, you know. But Issa, very talented and had a, a certain level of skill, you know. And so our collaboration is me looking at what she has and collaborating in a way where I'm not imposing my idea of what that should be. I'm more 
recognizing what that is and then contributing together in a way to push it forward. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But I'm respecting the the gem of what that is, and I always felt my job is to protect that as much as possible because maybe from an experience, she might let somebody push that away, mm. you know, and, you know, when you're inexperienced, you say yes a little too quickly and you don't say no enough right? because, you know, you want to just please people, you want to get the job. So my job is kind of the protector, too. I say, no, motherfuckers, you're not messing with that. (laughs) Stay away from that. Yeah, exactly, in some ways. But also, we're both collaborating at the same time, too. We're challenging each other, um, acknowledging each other, that kind of stuff. So, it's an interesting collaborative process, yeah. Absolutely. It's a lot of fun. Now, Kenya with Blackish was a little different, because Kenya had already written a script, um, and my job was to help produce it and help realize it and make sure it was a series. Yeah. You know? So with that, it's more discussions with me in Kenya that are a little more technical and a little more having discussions about culture and what belongs in this show as a series. Because he already had a pilot and I already yeah. figured it out. You know, and, and having those fun conversations about stuff, knowing what things are going to be uncomfortable and all that. But how does this work? You know, and trying to set that up in the best way possible. So that was a little different, but I'm, I was still kind of in the protective mode right, right. in that sense, too. Yeah. And so, you know, looking at the... Kenya Bears, uh, yeah. Blackish. Blackish mm-hmm. creator and producer is now going to Netflix, which I can't wait to see. Kenya is brilliant. Yeah. You know, he's, he's off just crushing the whole world right, right now. Yeah. So I feel like when you, you have your writing and producing and some a little bit of acting mm-hmm. and being a fairy, fairy godfather, papa bear of two other creators. Right, right. But I feel like when you had the nightly show, that was really when you were steering the whole ship. This was like yeah. you were the face of the show, yeah. you, you know, producing the show, helping writing the show, like you were really steering it. So what, and of yes, course it was scary. one of those things. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I can imagine so. And I feel like... Unf- it didn't. It feel like it didn't get a chance to really find its own voice because, mm-hmm. unfortunately, it was canceled after just right. one year. So, from that experience, what? First of all, do you feel that? Do you feel that you should have had more time in developing it? Like, oh, what was- of course. You know, you'd always hope for that. But what's interesting about that show, and you asked me about like m- finding my voice. Mm-hmm. That show, more than anything I've ever done, helped for me personally, crystallize what I felt my voice was. Mm-hmm. And it really is the joke that I made earlier, keeping it 100% real. Yeah. You know, and I realized when I look back at my career, I had always done that. You know, and I go, oh, that's kind of what I've done. Right. You know, and then I, it, that became what the show was about, basically. Mm-hmm. Was whatever we're going to do, like it or not like it, we're going to try to keep it 100, you know. Right, right. And it really became, you know, that's what it was. That was the outgrowth of it. And now it's, I'm kind of known for that, you know, which is a nice place to be. And whether I'm doing the White House Correspondence Dinner, you know. <laughs> which was iconic in so many ways. I had ways. to keep it 100 with the president. And you did. <laughs> <laughs> and you and, made headlines for doing it. And you're not making everybody happy with that right. on both sides, you I know. Mean, what am I supposed to do? I enjoyed it. Keep so it like, 90? <laughs> <laughs> Keep it like A minus? Keep it 85. <laughs> but, right. I mean, I think mm-hmm. one thing that was, uh, one thing that I really love about your career is that you have, of course, you know, forged your own path mm-hmm. in telling stories from, you know, people that we need to hear more stories right. from. That's always been a passion of mine. Right, but you've mm-hmm. also been very, very diligent in 
leaving the door open for others. Absolutely. Because, you know, back in your producing days, like, you were very adamant about hiring female mm -hmm. directors. And, Absolutely. You know, and Robin Thede was your head writer, who, mm -hmm. of course, had her own show on, on BET. Purpose. Yeah. yeah, on purpose. So right. I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Like, who, when you're looking for people to support your vision, right. who are you looking for? Because you mentioned earlier that, you know, skill versus talent and all that. So, like, who are you looking for when you say, like, I need someone to help execute my vision. Like, what creative assets are you looking for in somebody? What I'm not sure I understand when you say to help my vision. Yeah, so like when you have something like The Nightly Show, you know, oh, okay. you need to get this off the ground. Well, that is more you're kind of looking to assemble a team. Um, you're looking at voices and that type of thing. I've done it for different types of things, and they have different requirements. The Nightly Show is a little different than anything else I've done because most of the people who are writing that type of thing usually are at the beginnings of their career mm -hmm. because late night television is one of those, it's more of an entry into other things. Right. You know, so you're going to be dealing with people whose voices are a little raw, maybe not quite defined, some of that stuff. So you, I always look for people more than I look for words, you know, so I look for who are the people I want to gather together to have this conversation with? Right. So sometimes I'll just talk with somebody, you know, just see just kind of how they look at things, you know. And I'll view maybe what they've written, maybe secondary. And sometimes I'll raise what they've written a little higher than this, depending on what it is. I kind of look at the whole picture. Um, because, and many people just look at scripts, but I... I always acknowledge, but there are people who have written those. Mm. You know, they don't exist independent of one another. And I think when you're assembling a team, I think it is important to keep that in mind. Who are the people you're gathering together to have this experiment in whatever it is? Right. So that's how I kind of look at it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we were talking again backstage. Sorry, you guys missed a lot. But <laughs> we were talking about how you just kind of delete things from your mind like you create it mm. and then you just kind of forget it and because I mean you are going at this breakneck pace with mm -hmm. just producing and writing and doing all these things and so with that being said I mean do you has there ever been a moment or a project or something that you've been working on where you just where you've just been stuck where you're just like I mm -hmm. can't really get it or you're that type of person that's just like oh forget that one I'm just going to go on to the next thing like has there been something well really yeah there's about? a you know I think a lot of writers people who think like writers and that kind of stuff, we kind of have a drawer, whether it's a metaphorical drawer or an actual drawer, where you kind of keep some ideas that maybe aren't ready yet, they're not cooked. I have a film idea I thought of 15 years ago that now seems maybe ready, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, things like that, you know? But then again, I thought of an idea three weeks ago that is like, oh, God, i got to write this right now, you know? And I've been developing it. It's been developed, like, scenes have been unfolding in front of me. I can already visualize it and everything, you know? Um, and it's a period piece. I mean, go figure. You really? Know? Yeah, how does that happen? You know? <laughs> so, you know, things like that happen. And because I'm in the act of creating a lot, I, I do tend to move on from something I've already done, so I don't think about it as much. I was saying um, writers kind of create and then other people kind of curate. You know, they're in the business of curating what, you know, we've created. And we keep creating, and so we forget about what they're curating. So, like, a lot of people, you hear musicians say this all the time where people were oh, I haven't listened to that album since I recorded it, you know, or I haven't seen that movie since we shot it or whatever, because they continue to create. They, they move on. Sometimes we're stuck, you know, with that 
album they did in the 90s. You know, we haven't moved on from that. But tell me about that, you know. It's like, that was 20 years ago. Why do I want to tell you about that? You know, we don't want to listen to what you're doing now. You know? So it's kind of interesting. You know? Right. Mm. And, you know, just... Again, because we, we talked about the nightly show, and we also uh, mentioned Robin Thede, who had the rundown on BET. Yeah, yeah. I, what I really appreciated about both of those shows was that they took they took the same satirical look at the news, something that you know obviously John Stewart pioneered with the Daily mm-hmm. Show, um, but they gave it they put it in the perspective of black of like black audiences, like mm-hmm. what and what how how we look at things, what's going on in the headlines through like our our own community, and so. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, I know that you know since since the nightly show uh, was canceled, you've gone on to have your own podcast and you've you know, continued your own voice in that way. Mm-hmm. So when you think about this whole conversation about satirical news in this age of Trump and all the all what we're <laughs> dealing with, how how has that how has that changed how you look how you approach satirical comedy? Because I mean, we're dealing with something that is unprecedented in many ways, and yeah. a lot of people say like this is such a golden age for you know satirical news. There's so much material to work with. So like, how has this? It's tough to say because right. the reality is more outrageous than the comment on it. Yeah. You know, so I mean, I don't know how. I don't know if there's been any comment on this administration or this time that we're in that has been more extraordinary than the actual thing. I can't think of anything, you know. Um, and I, like, when I look back at the Bush administration, the Daily Show and Jon Stewart really stand out yeah. as a voice, you know. But they were kind of a singular voice at that time, you know. You can look back at some of the Johnny Carson monologues, even from the 70s, you know, and 80s, where he made jokes that were very good jokes at the time about things, you know even go back to Will Rogers and people, you know, different times of people who've made comments on things. Right. You know, um, and I think about this time and nothing stands out. It's kind of interesting. And maybe there's just a lot of people commenting on it or maybe we're already going, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> this is horrible. That's you know? Maybe it's just fatigue. <laughs> I know. So who knows? So then the question is, okay, well, how do you make a different comment? Right. You know, or how do you personalize this in a way that is, you know gives it a different thing, you know, rather than trying to make the perfect comment. So how know. how would you, if you still had your show, what would you want to do? I don't know. I mean, it's really tough. I mean, I always tried to focus on the nightly show. Our goal was to have voices on television that don't always get to be on television. Yeah. You know, and, and it was about having a conversation. So I was never focused on having the right joke. I was focused on having the difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. So right now, I'd still be focused on that conversation. So on things that were difficult for people to talk about, or whether it's this caravan that's happening, like I'd definitely be covering, covering this caravan right now that's, mm-hmm. coming, that's coming to our country. That's a huge story. Right. I don't know if the left is covering that in the way that I think it probably should be covered, you know. Um, there's so much focus on on Trump stuff, you know. But that's a huge thing happening right now. Um, there's so many different uh, things. Sometimes we get distracted by things. Like I was laughing at this whole Megyn Kelly thing. Did you guys see that in the news <laughs> with the blackface? And I said on my podcast once, I said, guys, from now on, let me tell you what to be concerned, what racist things you should be concerned about, and what things you should just calm down about. <laughs> I will handle with a joke. You you keep your eyes on the prize. Right. Okay? <laughs> and that's how I feel about the Megyn Kelly thing. I said, let me make jokes about 
that. Got this, everyone. Stop getting it. outraged about it. Nobody cares about this. <laughs> Trust me. There's a caravan of, of people, desperate people coming to this country. There's a caravan of people in Washington, D.C. who are marching us towards the brink. You know, <laughs> Let's focus on the proper things here and not be outraged about blackface. Stop it. You know, Because so, I mean, I'm not outraged about that, that stuff. You know? So what do you think is the most effective... Or do you even think comedy should be used uh, in this way? Like, what's the most effective way to use comedy to enact change? Like, when, you ta- when you're thinking about, uh, when you, because, like, when The Daily Show first, first appeared, this was really how a lot of people knew about topical events. Like, they, they even though it's told through the, through the lens of a joke, that's, a lot of, that's how a lot right. of people got their headlines. And so now, you know, with, the, with it being so saturated and it being this right. kind of fatigue, what do you feel is the most effective way that comedy can wake people up or enact change? Like, how can you break mm-hmm. through that? Fatigue? Well, I'm going to disagree with your premise a little bit here. Yeah, go for it. I had an argument. I had Malcolm Gladwell on my podcast, so we kind of had an it's argument well. about this. You know, but um, but to me, I always feel the first purpose of comedy is to be funny. Yeah. You know, and it's to get laughs, and the byproduct of that can be enlightenment and these other things. You know, but. Unless you are specifically consider yourself an agent of change, then that's what you are. But that's not the definition of what we do. That's being imposed by people who want us to do that. Mm. You know, so it's hard for me to answer that because that's not in the definition as far as I'm concerned. I understand why people want that. You know, and if somebody wants to take that on, because... I mean, there was a whole article about the John Oliver effect. Did mm-hmm. you guys read that? Right. Yeah, and it talked about how, and even John Stewart. And John Stewart actually admitted that for all of the stuff that he did and thought might have an effect, that it didn't, and how he kind of lamented it and kind of in some ways felt disappointed. I remember we had this rally to restore sanity. I don't know if anybody remembers that. In 2010, that seems so weird now to even say that, right? But when Obama was president, we needed to restore sanity. <laughs> It's like, John, what were you thinking exactly? (laughs) Right? Exactly. What were you thinking, you know? So, and I remember a lot of people coming away from that feeling kind of empty. Looking back, we can understand why. (laughs) You know, we really need that rally now, right? (laughs) Where is it? I mean, seriously, it's a call to action. But what was the action then? There was a lot of critique going on at the time that I felt was a little misplaced. Mm. It was almost the wishful thinking. I did it in the form of a joke where my joke was, like, I saw a lot of progressives who backed Obama and kind of made him a Bobby Kennedy before he was elected, you know, and had all these kind of progressive murals they were painting with Obama in there, you know. It's kind of like the one of him coming out of those bushes that I don't like, you know, in the Smithsonian. Oh, yeah. Whatever. I'm like, why is Obama in the bushes? I don't understand that. You know? <laughs> I think progressives are kind of painting that, you know. Yeah, hope and change. Hope you change it to what we wanted in 68, Obama. Yeah, do that. I voted for Obama because he was black, and I told people this. I said, stop it. I got my wish when he was elected. Done. It's like, do you think he's going to pass health care for everybody? Is he still black? (laughs) Thank you. I don't care. I really don't care. Just get through it. Do a good job, Obama. Do a good job. That's all I care about, brother. I'm I'm, I'm not going anywhere. Matt Damon saying, hey, man, aren't you guys disappointed with Obama? Is he still black? (laughs) Is he? Answer the question, Matt Damon. Stop asking me in 2009, am I disappointed? 
What are you talking about? What is this wish that things have to, this, uh, you know, I, uh, sometimes progressives, uh, they really get me with now is not good enough. It always has to be 50 years from now is the thing, you know. Right. God bless them. I mean, that's how things get done sometimes, you know, of course, but it, uh, it always is the thing that gets me. So that kind of is a thing that sticks with me sometimes. Why were you trying to restore sanity in 2010, you know, when I think about it? So. I mean, that's the thing is you this career has just been so incredible in so many ways i mean like you've just been consistently working that's why like mm-hmm. whenever the night the show is canceled it's like he's gonna he's obviously gonna be fine because he's got his hands in so many different things mm-hmm. so what keeps you that creative spark within you because i feel like mm-hmm. it can people can easily get burnt out especially yeah. if they're going at the pace you're going so right what is it a what is it that I think I've been very lucky be- because I'm, as I said, I'm kind of scatterbrained and I'm interested in a lot of things. If I was still trying to do a thing like the nightly show, that absolutely could have happened. Yeah. But because I'm interested in other things of telling other people's stories, creating something here and there, there's so many lanes I can get in that that are creative lanes, you know, and that um, spark my interest. Um, I was developing a show last year. It ended up not going, but it was so much fun to at least try to do. It was with Bassem Youssef, who's the Egyptian John Stewart. He was called. Oh, He's right. here at Joe's Pub right now, and it was it was kind of an out concept. But I thought sometimes you have to swing for the fences. But he was the father of a family of superheroes, who an Arab Arab family of superheroes, and they had to they were underground because you couldn't be an out super right. at the time. But it was kind of a comment on... And they were an immigrant family, too. So it was both the comment on being immigrants and treated a certain way and also not being able to tell anyone you were a, super, a superhero. <laughs> you know? oh, wow. So it was dealing with both of those things, which is kind of... So it was kind of an action fantasy adventure right. show. You know, Very ambitious, tough to pull off. You know? But so much fun to try to do. Absolutely. And I was like, man, if I could bring an Arab family an Arab-American family to television in this kind of fantasy way, how awesome would that be? Right. Yeah, so so that excites me to try to do that type of thing. Right. And I'm working with uh, Quinta Brenson and Jermaine Fowler right now. We have a show over at CBS we're trying to do, and it's uh, they're a, a pair of young friends, you know, who accidentally get pregnant, and they're trying to do this as friends. And I was excited about telling a millennial story that's not the typical millennials don't care type of thing. It's like, no, millennials, like any other group, right. care. Let's tell a story about some millennials who take charge of their life, you know, and are adulting. That's one right. term we've been using. These two <laughs> choose to adult, but they're doing it in their own way, you right. know. So that's exciting to me to, to get in their shoes and look at things from that point of view, and I can add my own you know, flavor nice. to it or whatever. And flavor you will add. I definitely want to leave some time to work in some audience questions. So we have some mic runners. If anybody has a question, anybody, anybody, don't be shy. Mic runners, a good job, oh, you guys. The lights you're, were just blind. You're looking yes. for a lane to be uh, in? Right <laughs> down there, right there. Oh. You can shout if you'd like. <laughs> so. Right, defeats the go. whole point of the mic. Right? I know, right? <laughs> Everybody <laughs> shout. Right. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, what's really inspired me that I haven't worked on? God, where do I start? Um, I'll start with Get Out. Uh, that 
um, oh, it's so good on so many different levels, you know. And I had it. Um, I had met Jordan before, but I didn't really know him. But after the movie, we sat and had lunch and everything. And I was such a fanboy doing it too. It was it was so embarrassing, you know. But we were both kind of doing it for each other, you know. But there were so many things about that movie that were just awesome. The biggest thing was he had a vision of how to do something different. And that really inspires me. And by the way, he wrote it over a long period of time. It took him a while to get that made and did different drafts of it. He even kind of overshot it and it eventually became what it was. But if I had to choose one thing, it's definitely Get Out. You know, I really love that film. So um, good. I think that right there. Question. Hopefully the mic Mike is working. Oh, she yeah. wants to say thank you first. Fast company kind of slow on the tech, I guess. Hey. Yeah. We're trying here. Come on. It's all, we only said the company's fast, Larry. We didn't say anything else. But. <laughs> See, those stand-up things, man. Hey, hey. Once you're a comedian, you got that. <laughs> uh, I know what you yeah. did at uh, White House Correspondence Center first was to be funny, but I want to say thanks for your bravery, too. Mm. Oh, Thank you. I appreciate uh, that. Thank you. It's about fame. I just wanted to see mm-hmm. what some of your thoughts on oh, fame, great. fame and creativity. Fame and success. Yeah, I know. The idea of what, uh, you know, do you need to be famous uh-huh. to be successful? Or <laughs> that is an amazing question because I am not a particular fan of fame. <laughs> you know, I'm a reluctant famous person. I always said the best kind of fame I have is what I call basic cable fame because the the people that... No, I'll tell you why. Because the people who know who I am already like what I do. Like, yeah. it's tough when you're famous enough to suck, you know? <laughs> like, when people don't quite know who you are but they kind of they go, oh, that guy sucks. You know? <laughs> like, like, nobody wants that kind of fame, you know, where you're in that. But um, I was very lucky to work with some famous people early on, and it is not good. Working with Eddie Murphy, man, he oh. can't go anywhere. Yeah. This was back, you know, in the day. Even Will Smith and these people, yeah. they can't go anywhere. It's not something that is as nice as it may seem, you know. And I think fame, I think, for some people can stifle creativity. You go to the second part of your question, and absolutely can um, but in some ways, it might give you a license to do some things. I never think about it because I'm just not interested in it. Um, when I was doing the nightly show, I, I know at the beginning I was a little uncomfortable because, like, I'm so self-conscious. I would see, you know, all these billboards and stuff, and all I'm thinking is how fat my head looks and all this stuff. <laughs> right? That's all I'm thinking. I'm like, man, when did they take that? That one looks fat. How come they didn't use the one from a few weeks before when I was sick as a dog and I was skinny? Oh, whatever. You know, <laughs> like I'm too self-conscious. Even on television all the time, I thought four nights. That's way too much of me on TV. I used to say stuff like that, you know. No. And, I, and I would always think maybe I should just do once a week. Nobody wants to see me four nights a week. So I have conversations like that in my head all the time. So I am, I am the anti-fame person working at show business, which is weird because, you know, I'm in front of people. But even as a stand-up comic, after the show, I would hide out or that type of thing and just hang out with friends. So I don't, I don't seek it. I do this more as, as an expression to say something and to engage in something rather as seeking attention. So I don't do it to seek attention. I do it for expression. That we have time sense. for one yeah. more question. Actually. Actually, we can get into that one. There. Yeah. yeah. You see one of the Yeah, okay, there we go. Hi. Uh, first of all, so big fan. Oh, thank Mr. you. Mr. Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown now. I mean, you had a... You, had a you were close. 50-50 chance of getting there. You were so <laughs> close. <laughs> you were so close. You know. <laughs> 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 
Showbiz, yeah, it's a lot so of that. Can you talk a little bit about how you overcome mm-hmm. that and how you continue to work and create things that you believe in despite sometimes you know, struggling with that? You guys have a lot of great questions here, man. That's See, an amazing we question. We lack in tech, but we have amazing attention. I know. There you go. Absolute fast <laughs> company, deep thoughts there. So, um, that is something that I know I've had from the beginning, and I don't think it ever goes away. You know, I've always had that feeling one day I'm going to get caught that I don't know what I'm doing. You know, you always, you, I, that's always living in me. And I think writers have it a lot, um, unfortunately, even though I've had different hats. I think my writer um, point of view wins out in the insecurity battle, you know. Um, but fortunately, I've been able to do things and the doing of them and even this type of thing gives me the confidence to do something else you know and when I hear from people of what they think about it it always gives me confidence when um, one of the toughest things I did was writing the pilot for the Bernie Mac show and I was it was tough because I was writing a a different form at the time all the sitcoms were multi-camera they had a certain tone to them and I pitched this show that was going to be different it felt like we were eavesdropping and all these things and it was single camera everything was multi-camera nothing was single camera this was way before the office and all that stuff but when I sat to write it, I was kind of stuck for a while. And I wrote, like, the same three pages every day for, like, four weeks, and I'd throw it out. Got to page three, throw it out. Some days didn't write anything. And I was in an office that I wasn't supposed to be in. I had to deal with Disney that expired, like, a year earlier. So I was sneaking on the lot every day, like, squatting hey. Yeah. I was squatting. Yeah. So, so I'm guilty because I'm squatting in an office on the Disney lot. And Disney's a company that would sue itself, so you don't want to be doing something like that, right? Right? So... So I'm kind of hiding out there, feeling real guilty and all that stuff. And I'm like, oh, I'm tearing myself up. And I'm, and I'm thinking, all my demons were working. I'm like, why did, I, why did I pitch this? This thing's unwritable, Larry. What's wrong with you? And I would get mad at myself. And then one day I got to page four. And something broke through. I, I, a light came on, you know. And I was like, ah. And I got it. And it poured out of me, like, in the next 36 hours. Just the whole script. And that script ended up winning an Emmy. It was amazing. And so the fact that it was recognized after that gave me the confidence to know, even though I had all those demons that were saying, you don't know what you're doing. This is going to be horrible. This is not good. Why did you do this? The validation on the other side said, okay, let's keep doing that. Don't be afraid of how that feels. That feeling sometimes is a good sign that you're in an area that's uncomfortable to you. So that means that's an area worth exploring and an area worth dramatizing because there's something of value in there that is working on you. And I notice when I'm a little too comfortable, sometimes the thing doesn't come out as interesting. It may come out okay, but sometimes it's just not as interesting. So that's kind of how I deal with it. Thank you. Last question. Wait on the microphone. They work now, so use them, please. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It did. You're absolutely right. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. I know. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's very interesting. I don't think it had any effect on me as a parent. Um, by the time I was doing that, my kids were a bit older. I, something else was m driving me in, in my parent life, and that was kind of the relationship I had with my parents that I felt was a bit broken, and my desire to not have that happen with my kids. And, and I've, it's funny, my personal life, I've... Like actually, my romantic life was never been a. I've never been good at, it, and I've always been good in my business life, which is always weird. But I'm so proud of the relationship I have with my kids um, because it's it, interesting. The if I can put any term to it, I have to say it's always been around a conversation. I've never dictated to my children. We've always been in conversation about things, you know, whether it's feelings or this type of thing or path, you know. And I got lucky in that in that dimension. The growth that I've had with my kids has been the result of the relationship we've always been forming. So it's always been kind of in that. And the cues I've gotten from other key people in my life on that. But my work, I think my personal life has had an effect on my work. But I don't think it's been the other way around. Thank you. Yeah. You're creating voices for your children. That's marvelous. Aww. Yeah, the, what I get out of that, I put into my work. Yeah. So that's what I've done, yeah. Well, Larry, great oh, writer, great producer, great, great father. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, man. This is great. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. That just about wraps up season one of Creative Conversation. I honestly can't thank you all enough for listening and make sure you stay subscribed because I am coming back for another season. I also want to give a huge thank you to the crew at the Invisible Studios West Hollywood for making this episode possible and to the team at Dubway Studios for your help throughout the season. And while I'm here just dishing out thank yous, possibly the biggest one of all goes to my producer, Shannon Burner. Now, Shannon, when you edit this episode, I demand that you leave this part in because people need to know just how dope you are so people listen up shannon burner is dope there you have it <laughs> thanks again for listening to season one of creative conversation and i'll be back in no time at all for season two 